Church family, be seated if you would. Speak, O Lord, until Your church is built and the earth is filled with Your glory. How does that happen? How does it happen that the church is built and that the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of God? Beloved, it happens by the teaching and by the preaching of the Word of God. And so to that end, we have been thinking this month in our time of worship together, this verse from Romans chapter 10, Paul laying out such a clear and logical argument about how it is that people get to a place where they are able to call on the name of the Lord. And it reminds Christians, it reminds churches, it reminds pastors of the necessity of preaching, declaring, proclaiming, teaching the Word of God. For without it, people cannot be, they will not be saved, and the earth will not be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. And so, I think this is the last Sunday of August, right? Uh, So by now, it's in your hearts, no doubt memorized if not quite memorized at least it's bouncing around in your heart and mind and prayerfully you're having moments to meditate upon this to think about this and chew upon it but for one more time together let's recite this beginning at the beginning here for everyone who calls on the name of the lord will be saved how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Romans 10, 13-14 Beloved, may it be the great aim of Faith Family Fellowship. May it be the great aim of every church. May it be the great aim of everyone who claims the name of Christ that we would spend our years, the few precious short years that we get on this planet, that we would spend it, not wasting it, but spending it, opening up the Word of God and making the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ known. Because, beloved, Christ is coming again. He's coming again, and on that great and terrible day, every eye will behold Him. Eternity is at stake, beloved. That's the reality. And when we don't preach the Word of God, We are messing with eternity. And so, in all of our hearts, from the pulpit to the pew, may we be those deeply committed to the proclamation of God's glorious Word in His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, with that in our hearts and minds, with a prayerful song asking You to speak, God, we come now to the focal point of every Lord's Day. Proclamation in the study of Your Word. God, Your Word is true. It is right. It is clear. It is just. It is holy. It is eternal. And God, the the reality for everyone in this room is that we must believe Your Word. We must believe the calls. We must believe the warnings. God, we must believe the truths. God, we must not raise ourselves up against the authority of Your Word. 
asking, did God really say? Father, we must come to Your Word with open hands, open hearts. God, ready to hear what You mean in Your Word and eager to apply the truths herein. God, it is incumbent upon every single person in the room that they place faith and trust for their salvation in Christ alone and no other. And so, Father, now in the preaching of Your Word, help me to be clear. And God, I, I just pray that in our hearts and minds, God, You would do a miraculous work of quieting the distractions. God, so that we might hear from You. God, because You intend to speak now. You intend to speak through Your Word. So Lord, help us to receive what You have here. Thank You for these saints. Thank You for everyone gathered. Thank You for the eagerness with which Your people eat up Your Word. So God, as this seed is planted into our hearts today, God, grow a fruit of righteousness from it. We ask and pray it all in Christ's great name. Amen. Well, Matthew chapter 5, saints. Matthew chapter 5 this morning, verses 31 to 32. Um, this coming week will mark 10 months that I, uh, uh, me and, and Katie and the crew have been here with you guys. Um, and over these 10 months on Sunday mornings, um, I think probably what you have begun to learn about me is that, at least I hope you've learned this, that I am a deeply convictional expository preacher, and if those terms are unfamiliar to you, that, that's fine. I just simply mean by that that my conviction is that the right way to preach and to uh, teach and to handle God's Word is to go verse by verse through books of the Bible. Um, we've been at Matthew for, I don't know, nine months or so now, and we're just kind of five and a half chapters in here. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, one of the things about expository preaching and the way that it helps those that are convictional about preaching in that way, one of the things, the beauties about it, is that you are just simply bound to the text, right? Um, I don't, you know, I don't get up every Monday morning having to be creative about what the next sermon text or the next sermon series or whatever is going to be. It's actually pretty easy for me. I open up my Bible and I look at where we left off the day before, and that's where we're going to be this coming Sunday. And if we believe that every single word of God is useful, profitable for all the great ends that God intends, then we will preach every single word of Scripture. Now, I will tell you that there are moments in that conviction where you look at a particular text or a series of particular texts and you might would wish that you were not as convictional about expository preaching as you are. Uh, last Sunday, for those of you that were here, just say sensitive, sometimes dicey subject matter uh, regarding uh, lust in our hearts and the outworking of that in our lives. This Sunday, as you have probably even looked ahead, another sensitive, uh, sometimes dicey subject matter, that of divorce. We think about how it joins together with last week's text. And you recall that last week in verses 27 to 30, that what we were called to in that text is a heart of purity and a radical repentance. Because at the heart of every adulterous act is a covetous, lust-filled heart that refuses to take radical measures to turn away from sin. And we saw the reality that when lust-filled looks are not crucified to the cross of Christ, acts of adultery will soon occur. And so then it's no surprise to us that what follows in the text, that what follows in the sermon that Jesus is preaching, what follows adultery is the serious and grave issue of divorce. 
And before we dive into the text this morning, I want to just say a few things right off the bat regarding this issue. I know, I know for a fact that every single person in this room that you have been affected by some way, whether directly or indirectly, relating to the issue of divorce. Some of you in the room have walked through yourself this dark valley of divorce. Others have lived through a divorce with your parents. Many, if not most, if not all of you, have watched other close family members or friends of yours walk through divorce. This is an intensely, intensely sensitive and for many, if not most, an intensely painful issue. Every single divorce is difficult. It's messy. Every divorce comes with long-term consequences and scars. For those of you in the room who have walked through this breathtakingly difficult issue, I want you to hear me say that I am just so sorry that that has happened to you. I am sorry that that is the road that you have walked. I want you to know I love you. And as I have been wrestling with this text, the issue has not been so much what does this mean? It seems pretty clear. But the issue has been how do you preach this in such a way that offers care and love for God's people in general, but then specifically for those that have walked this difficult road. So I see you. I love you. Here's what's most important. God sees you. And God loves you. And God is not done with you. And divorce is not the unforgivable sin. You are not tainted goods. And you are not on the shelf now unusable to God. But there is a text before us. And there are hard truths herein. We want to be faithful to the preaching and the study of God's Word. Here's my hope. Okay, I've got several hopes here for us. Number one, I want us to love Jesus more today. I want us to love Jesus more for His covenant faithfulness to us as our glorious bridegroom. Secondly, I want us to see what God thinks about marriage. And what God thinks is plainly before us in this text. I want us to see it so that we would always fight for marriage even in the most difficult of circumstances. Thirdly, my hope is that we would commit ourselves afresh and anew to the covenant of marriage that you have made with your spouse, your husband, your wife. And lastly, my hope is that we would be in a place where our delight is in the wife or in the husband that God has given. And that from that delight, would come the constant refrain regarding that precious spouse, that the constant refrain would be that of Solomon's maiden in Song of Solomon chapter 6 and verse 3, that I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. That we would rejoice in the wife and the husband of our youth. And that we would commit ourselves afresh and anew to God's plan for marriage. Look at the text with me. Let's read it together. Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32. It was said, Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I want to look at a couple of issues. One in verse 31, the other in verse 32. Two issues as we're seeking to answer the question, what does God think about marriage? Number one, first issue is this. God intends... Marriage to be a lifelong covenant, a lifelong one flesh union between one man 
and one woman. God intends marriage to be a lifelong covenant union between one man and one woman. Look in verse 31 again. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Here in verse 31, Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 3. And while we won't turn there, just to briefly explain that, those four verses there, those three verses there, the point of that Deuteronomy 24 passage is this the law coming to the people and saying, even in the most difficult of marital circumstances, even in the most grave of marital sin, husbands, you need to think long and hard about divorcing your wife. And as that text in Deuteronomy 24 unfolds, the point is that once you divorce your wife and she goes and marries another man, you may not then go back and remarry her. And I think that there are a lot of issues that are kind of contained in that law. But what Moses says to the people through the law is that if your wife, even if she commits marital unfaithfulness, adultery against you, and you give her a certificate of divorce, be careful here. Be wise here. Because the point of that Deuteronomy text, which Jesus is quoting in verse 31, the point of that text is not to show how easy it should be to get a divorce. The point of the text is to show how painfully messy and difficult divorce always is. Again, even if that husband in Deuteronomy 24 is free to divorce his wife because of her unfaithfulness. Divorce is not something that should be quickly or casually pursued. Now here's why Jesus quotes that Deuteronomy passage in verse 31. Because by the time that Jesus sits down on that hillside to preach this sermon, here's what has become of Deuteronomy 24 Verses 1 to 3. Here's what the Jewish religious leaders are teaching and practicing. Here it is. Their idea is this you can divorce your wife for any old reason at all, just make sure that you give her a certificate of divorce. So, uh, from Deuteronomy 24 to Matthew 5, over all of those century and millennia, where we have gotten to is all they got out of Deuteronomy 24 is, if you're going to divorce her, just make sure you file the right paperwork. Give her a certificate. And what began to grow out of that is an easy, flippant view of marriage and an even more easy and flippant view of divorce. It's okay to divorce her for any reason. Just give her a certificate and send her away. And here's what's going on with the certificate of divorce. That certificate of divorce was originally intended to serve as a protection for the wife who was being sent away so that no one would think that she's being unfaithful to her husband. However, the Jewish rabbis have weaponized this practice. And they've turned it into divorce for any reason at all. They treated marriage much too flippantly and threw around divorce and certificates of divorce much too freely. In fact, they had an entire code. These Jewish rabbis had an entire code written out that spelled out all the reasons whereby it would be justifiable to divorce one's wife. You ready for this? If she burns supper, you can divorce your wife. 
if she embarrasses you in public somehow, you can divorce your wife. If she's not, this is literally written down, if she's not attractive enough, you can divorce your wife. According to the Jewish rabbis, if she was displeasing to you in a myriad of ways, just send her away. Be done with her. And again, their teaching was what? Just fill out the paperwork. Just sign the certificate of divorce and everything will be fine. In their minds, so long as they presented this divorce certificate and kept to the letter of the law, at least as they would define it, they were justified in their sinful behavior. Sadly, beloved, nothing has changed in 2,000 years. Nothing. This isn't just an ancient Pharisee problem. This is a modern day problem. Unfortunately, most sadly, it's a modern day problem even in the life of the church. Divorces are filed in staggering numbers for absolutely no good reason at all. We have irreconcilable differences. I just don't love her anymore. She isn't that. He isn't this. She, he is not what I thought they would be. And so to the courtroom and the paperwork, they go. Jesus, later in Matthew's Gospel, will tease this out for us, again, very plainly. Turn to Matthew 19 with me. Matthew chapter 19. He will address this issue again with even more clarity as He is being questioned by the religious leaders of His day. Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 3. Matthew 19, verse 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing Him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Right there, they just laid their cards on the table, right? They just revealed what their practice is, what their mindset is, divorce for no reason at all. Jesus, can we do that? And they think, they think that Jesus is something other than what He really is. They think He's something other than the Word made flesh. They think somehow He's going to miss Deuteronomy 24 like He wasn't there somehow when it was written and that they're going to catch Him here. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And He answered and said, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? Have you not read that? What did Jesus just do? He didn't just take them to Deuteronomy 24. He took them to the dawn of creation. He took them back to the sixth day. He takes them back to God's original creation, order, and design for marriage. Number one, verse four, He made them male and female. This is not hard. This is not complex. This is not confusing. God creates two co-equal but distinct image bearers, one male and one female. And what is His design for that male and female, particularly as it relates to marriage, and then more broadly, marriage as a whole? Verse 5, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What does God think about marriage? What is God's design for marriage? Every single time with no exceptions, God's design is one man, one woman in a covenant binding one flesh union until death do us part. And woe to the one 
who would ask, did God really say? Surely God's got a different plan, right? Surely that's ancient. Surely that's out of touch. Verse 6, they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together? It, it, on the wedding day, it's not just a man and a woman you know, being in front of people and saying a few vows and, and, and them coming together in a marriage. It's not just that. It's God bringing them together. It's God's sovereign hand. It's God's sovereign will. And God brings them together. And when they say their I do's, when they make those promises, beloved, those aren't words. Those aren't just words. That is a binding covenant with one another before God. I, I, I was I lamented, honestly, after we had moved back, and I did my first wedding just a few months after moving back, and um, I, I went to ask, hey, can I, get, can I get the marriage certificate so I can sign that? Every wedding I've ever done, um, and they've all been mostly in Kentucky, some a few other places, but in every marriage I've ever done, the pastor, the officiant, signs the, the, the wedding certificate. In the state of Alabama, the, the pastor, and there are various reasons for this, it's a longer conversation, but the pastor is no longer required to sign the marriage certificate. And here's what I lament. I lament that marriage, which is a before God kind of union, that it is now increasingly in so many places only a civil matter. Not a religious matter anymore. But saints, do not forget verse 6. What therefore God has joined together. And the use of the word what, not whom, suggest something bigger than just the two people saying I do. Because it's pointing to the overall sanctity of marriage. And so what then God has joined together? Let no man separate. They said to Him, why then did Moses command... Here's what they think they have Him, by the way. Why then did Moses command, notice the use of that word, to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart. Wouldn't you love to be sitting right there in that moment? Um, that wasn't actually a command. That was a concession because of your hardness of heart. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it has not been this way. And when he says the beginning, he's talking about Genesis 1 and 2, right? In verse 9, and I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Marriage is a one flesh union between one man and one woman in a binding till death do us part covenant with one another and before God. That's what God thinks of marriage. God takes marriage so seriously. And we'll talk about the reasons why in a moment. But God takes marriage so seriously that the biblical allowances for divorce are very, very, very few. And the consequences of divorce are always excruciating, if not devastating. So, secondly, second issue to consider, verse 32, is that God gives an allowance for divorce when, and I might would even add, and only when, the one flesh union is broken. God gives an allowance for divorce when the one flesh union is broken. Now look, there are godly, godly, godly people on all sides of this issue. And we're not going to delve into what all the sides of the argument are, but there are godly people. 
just on various sides of this issue, of this issue regarding marriage, divorce, and remarriage. I think the Word of God is really clear, though. Look in verse 32. But I say to you, again, Jesus not doing something new, driving at what the heart of what is very old, right? But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Just kind of lock in here for a few minutes. Here in verse 32, there is an allowance, graciously I think, given for divorce. And what is before us in verse 32, that allowance is in the case of adultery. So remember what's being taught. Remember what's being practiced. Just make sure to file the right paperwork. You can get a divorce for any reason. And Jesus says in verse 32, no, that's not right. That's wrong. There's only one God-given biblical allowance for divorce. And it's the breaking of the one flesh union, in verse 32, through adultery. And in one sentence, in verse 32, in one sentence, Jesus condemns their system of easy divorce, and He condemns their hearts which want to skirt God's law for their own selfish ends. Verse 32, look at it again. I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity. So here, Jesus gives, maybe we would call this an exception clause. Some have labeled it that way. Maybe we would say an allowance for divorce <clears throat> due to the reason of unchastity. That word unchastity, it probably gets translated different ways in some of your versions of the Bible. But that word in the Greek language in which the New Testament was, you recall, originally written, that word is the Greek word porneia. That word likely sounds, at least part of that word, sounds familiar to you. And there's good reason for that. Originally, this word meant the physical act of adultery itself. As time went by, that, that word porneia would be applied maybe more, a little more broadly in reference to all manner of sexual sin. And Jesus comes to this issue in verse 32 and gives this exception or this allowance. Why? Why does He do this? Why would He allow divorce in the case of adultery? Because... In the act of adultery, there is a breaking of covenant. There is a breaking, if not a more painful tearing away of this one flesh union that has been promised before one another and God. Because then of the sin of adultery, the sin of breaking covenants, of ripping away the one flesh union, in His wisdom, God says, in that instance, divorce, while not God's design, while not God's pleasure, it is allowed in that instance. And I want your eyes just settling on verse 32. I want you just grappling with this reality that there are not many reasons for divorce listed here. The list is very narrow. Very narrow. Now, let me brief time out. Because there might be some at this point that would recollect some other language in other New Testament passages. And a person might think about and rightly ask about, hey, what about that abandonment issue that's described in 1 Corinthians chapter 7? Would you turn over there for just a moment? 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 
It's a good question. It's a right and necessary question. Is divorce acceptable in the case of abandonment? And what do we mean by abandonment? Well, 1 Corinthians 7. Let's pick up together in verse 12. Paul speaking about a lengthy text on marriage here. and comes down to verse 12 and he says this, To the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. It's difficult, a lot going on here, but otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Here's the point, verse 15. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? And how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? And so a question arises from that text, what about the issue of abandonment. And we would certainly adhere to what the Word of God says, but then connecting it back to our text this morning, is not adultery abandonment in its highest form? It is abandonment in its highest form. Some would also rightly ask about, what about the issue of abuse in marriage? And as we walk through these instances and we apply biblical Holy Spirit wisdom, I think we can also say that abuse in marriage, it is the breaking of marital covenants. And though we want to fight for marriage, even in the worst cases, an abusive husband has broken his marital covenant to love, to cherish, and to protect his wife. He has abandoned covenants. And she is free. So then, back in verse 32, except for the reason of unchastity, Jesus takes all of this so seriously that in verse 32, he says this, divorce for any reason other than adultery makes her commit adultery. Because any other reason is not a biblical reason. Irreconcilable differences do not break the one flesh covenant. That's selfishness that needs to be crucified. I just don't love her anymore is not a reason to break the one flesh covenant. That is selfishness that needs to be crucified. She hurt me too much. Too bad. That's not a reason to break the one flesh covenant. You need to forgive and crucify your selfishness. Divorce for any reason other than adultery leaves the marriage still in a one flesh union. That's why the language you make her commit adultery. And then the very end of verse 32, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Remember what Jesus said at the end of Matthew 19 verse 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. To divorce for any reason other than adultery means you are not free to remarry. You are still in a one flesh union and you cannot then very well enter into a one flesh union with someone else. Because in God's eyes, the only eyes that matter, you are still married to your wife. Let your eyes, if you can, fall back to verse 22. Let's connect all of this together because I think this is important as we seek to practically apply these things to our hearts and lives. Verse 22, put anger to death in you. 
in your marriage, put anger to death. Verse 24, reconcile quickly with your spouse. And do not let anger and bitterness and unforgiveness fester. Verses 27-30, to fight for heart purity and fight for radical repentance in order to put lust to death in you. Do that and you will be well on the way to destroying the idea of divorce in your marriage. And then, then, write this down. Apply Ephesians 4.32 to your marriage. I'm serious. Write that down. And I want us, saints, every husband, every wife, every believer, would you memorize this? Because I promise you, if we will be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another just, in, just as God in Christ has forgiven us, if we do that, if we live that out, we will avoid the devastating reality and consequences of divorce. So often, Marriages get in trouble because we just refuse to be kind to one another as God has first been kind to us. We refuse to be tender toward one another as God has been tender to us. We refuse. Maybe most mind-blowingly of all, we refuse to forgive as God in Christ has first forgiven us. Listen, Ephesians 4.32, the sin and divorce right out of your marriage. Apply this. Church, we need to be those who fight for marriage. Every single time. I think there's two reasons why. Number one, marriage displays the Gospel. That's why we fight for it. Even in the worst cases. We fight for marriage because marriage displays the Gospel. You remember Ephesians 5. Paul has walked through this glorious text on marriage. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives and give yourselves up for her just as Christ has done for the church. And he walks through this text and comes to the end of it in verse 32 and says this mystery is great. But I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. God intends that our marriages display the Gospel. That they display a faithful bridegroom, Jesus Christ, and the way that He eternally binds Himself to His covenant people, His bride. And when you say, I do, and two become one flesh, you display the union, not just with one another, but the union which we have in Christ. Our marriages are not about us. They're about the glory of God and the face of Christ. And when we lose that, when we lose that, we will quickly give ourselves to divorce. But secondly, fight for marriage because divorce just destroys, guys. It destroys. Do not, please do not, please do not sacrifice your precious wife, your precious Husband, your precious children, please do not sacrifice them on the altar of your selfish lust and pleasure. Don't do it. Please do not do it. Even in the best of cases, divorce 
destroys. So fight for marriage. Fight for it. Even in the case of adultery, don't take the easy way out. Begging you, fight for it. Fight for forgiveness. Fight for restoration. Fight for repentance. As the church, come alongside one another to help one another fight for the sanctity of marriage. Do not condone divorce. Have you sinned against your spouse? Have you sinned against your spouse in this way? There's grace. Oh, saints, and there is forgiveness. There's grace. And there is forgiveness. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. He is the faithful bridegroom. Eternally faithful to His bride, the church. In Him, there is mercy. In Him, there is forgiveness. In Him, there is faithfulness. If you've sinned in this way, the lie that gets told in your heart over and over and over again is that there's no coming back from that. And that's a lie from the forked tongue pit of hell. Because there is mercy. And there is grace. And there is forgiveness. Run to Jesus, dear saints. In Christ there is salvation. There's salvation. Remember, again, Ephesians 5, that glorious text in marriage, it's Christ who loved us and gave Himself for us. There's salvation in Him. It is Christ who is cleansed with His blood. It is Christ who's coming again one day to claim His bride. Run to Jesus. I love you. I love your marriages, your families. I want God's very, very best for us. Saints, let's fight for it. For all the reasons that we've mentioned this morning and all the many more, let's fight for it to glorify God and make much of His glorious Gospel. Let's pray together. God, You know, God, you know the hearts of Your people. You know the hurt. as to remove condemnation from their hearts. God, would You give them mercy. God, I think Your heart breaks. I think Your Spirit is grieved in every single instance of divorce even when it's allowed. But God, there is hope. There's hope in that. God, thank You that divorce is not the unforgivable sin. God, thank You for the work of grace that You do in people's hearts. God, thank You for the way that You restore marriage the way that You reconcile. And God, even if a rec- the reconciliation of a marriage doesn't happen, God, how many times have we seen You draw near to Your faithful saints and heal and restore? And God, we trust 
that You will continue, God, to do these things. Lord, I pray over the marriages of Faith Family Fellowship. I pray for the ones this morning, O oh God, that are in a difficult place. Father, I pray for those marriages that are in a difficult place and they've told no one. For fear of shame, condemnation. Oh God, would You this very day open up the avenues of communication and grace and ministry and mercy, God, so that we as Your people might be a cause of helping to reconcile what Satan would love to destroy. God, for the marriages in which You've done a glorious work. God, we thank You. We thank You for Your grace. God, we thank You for Your goodness. God, I thank You that there is coming a day when divorce will die. And the pain and the suffering that it brings God, it will be destroyed in hell forevermore. God, I thank You that we have a gospel hope that our bridegroom, our perfect, faithful bridegroom is coming again to get His bride. To take her, us, to the place that He has made for us. God, help us it's a it's a complex text god it's deep it's it's sometimes the way that all of this flushes out in our lives god is very nuanced god would you help us to have holy spirit wisdom biblical conviction and a deep and abiding love for our husbands our wives so god we trust you please move and work in our hearts, we pray. Christ our Lord. Amen.